0: So we, um, in order to uh, to make further progress about this uh, this mimer from a footner about the Hanukkah, so in order to <laughs> fully appreciate what, the, what we're going to discuss and learn tonight, we really need to go back and review some of the questions which he had asked, which we uh, which we learned about the last uh, last week. So the first one which we're not going to get to is uh, the language of Hanero Salalu says that these candles are kodesh. You're not allowed to use them, you're only allowed to look at them. So we pointed out that the fact that you're not allowed to use them, so that's a consequence of the fact that they are Kodish. But the fact that the only thing you're allowed to do is look at them, so that seems to be a little bit out of place. Why is that something which is uh, necessary to emphasize? Looking at them doesn't violate his Kedusha anyways, so what's going to be the, uh, what will be the big deal? Then, a second thing that Rafutner pointed out was that we find two similar but different brachas. Two brachas which are made on people who are wise. One, a bracha which is said on a Tamil Chacham, and the other is a bracha which is said on somebody who is uh, wise in secular knowledge, has acquired a lot of secular knowledge. And I've pointed out that besides some of the discrepancy in terms of the language of the bracha, but one of the key things is is that it seems to be that if you saw a Jewish scientist you would not say the bracha on a scientist. That's something which is reserved for non-Jews, and that's not something which would be said for Jews. And that also Rufutner was wondering why exactly that, that is so. And then, one of the things which uh, which uh, uh, which we will get to tonight, is that Rufutner contrasted the bris, the covenant which God made with B'nai Noah, with the one which he made with the world in general, and then the bris which he made with Kla Yisrael. And one of the things which she pointed out, and this is really where we're going to begin with uh, tonight, one of the things which she pointed out was the fact that the bris that Akash Baruch Hu made with Klayusah by Matan Torah, so that involved a conversation ahead of time. Do you want the Torah? Do you not want the Torah? What exactly is involved? But there was a mutual agreement on both sides. Whereas the covenant that God made with the world in general, what's referred to as bris Noach, so there was no discussion about it. God just said. I'm promising you that I'm not going to destroy the world anymore. Here's a rainbow to serve as a reminder. And here are seven mitzvahs, which I expect you mankind to go ahead and observe. And God didn't consult with the nations of the world and say, listen, I'm thinking about uh, issuing these seven mitzvahs. Do you want to accept them or do you not want to accept them? It was just imposed upon them, regardless of whether they were accepting of it or or not. So that also was a curious type of thing that uh, both of them are, are characterized as covenants, and yet the m- method by which these covenants were entered into is very different. Okay, so that is where we left off last week. So now we pick it up over here. Hopefully this is on the uh, the page over there. So here, Ravutner begins, and I'll just tell you, orient you where we are, although we're not going to be doing so much reading inside, we're going to be jumping around a lot tonight. But Rafunder says that the way to understand the difference between the covenant which was entered into with the nations of the world and the covenant which was entered into with the Jewish people, he says, has to do with two different categories of das, two different categories of agreement, knowledge, acquiescence, whatever word you're going to go ahead and use. And he said the way to go ahead and to characterize it, the way to give an example of the different types of das, the different types of uh, awareness that we're discussing over here has to do with uh, the way he says is um, one is the knowledge in order to create an obligation in the first place and then there is there is the uh, the das necessary in order to go ahead and exact payment so he says that when it comes to creating an obligation in the first place so if we're going to decide that Mel is going to owe me $200, so I can't make that decision on my own. As much as I've tried many times to uh, to say that Mel owes me $200, I've been unsuccessful in getting him to pay me as of yet. Because in order to create a hischaivus, in order to create an obligation, you need the obligated to be on board in terms of that obligation. And you can't create that can create an obligation without the person agreeing to accept upon himself that responsibility. So just like I cannot uh, uh, I cannot force, or not just like, but I cannot force Mel to go ahead and commit to pay me $200. So that's a type of DAS, where you need the agreement of the other party in order to create that obligation. However, once Mel has agreed that he does owe me the $200, Again, whatever the circumstances were, uh, uh, I loaned him money, whatever it is. Once that uh, uh, obligation exists, so then the type of das necessary in order to get him to pay is minimal. Because I could go ahead and I could force him to pay even without his, uh, his agreement. Good evening, Ralph. There's all sorts of things which I could do, which would, which would force him to pay without having to, uh, without his, his agreement whatsoever. Because that das, the das necessary in order to create the, uh, in order to pay is, he says, das All we need to do is we need uh, Mel to go ahead and agree to the reality of his obligation to pay me. So, once the obligation exists, all he needs to do is conform with the reality, which is you're going to pay. And I don't need him to agree to pay anymore because I could use methods. I could go to court. I could go to Basin. I could find Vinny. I could do all sorts of things to force Mel to go ahead and pay. And it's not necessary for him to agree at that point because the obligation exists even in the absence of his agreement. So, the, necess- the, the amount of DAS necessary over there is something which is really, which is really uh uh minimal because as he says because you could go ahead and take payment from a person even against their will that's balkorcho shalomidaito or Little does Ralph know that while he's in Vegas, so we've been going into his apartment, we've been collecting things from him because we've claimed that he owes us uh, stuff, and we don't even need his uh, his his agreement to that. We could just walk in as a repo man. We could walk in and take his stuff, and he doesn't even have to be there in order for us to go ahead and take his stuff. Now, Ralph watch out for to- the cops, Rabbi. What? Watch out for the cops. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we got. Uh, you just you got to know who to talk to and who to uh, to slip a twenty-two or something or a hundred, and uh, they look the other way. They send them to Mel's house, and then we're uh, then we're good to go. Um, right, so that is so that is a fundamental difference between them. And now he says, in this part, we are going to read inside. So he says the two types of das, which we're discussing over here, the one which creates an obligation and the one which conforms with the existing reality. So he, dis- he describes, he characterizes that, he he words that as, phrases that as, das yotzeras. So that's the, the thinking process, which is necessary to create, to create an obligation in the first place. And then there's das maschima, and then there is the uh, agreement with the, circum- the the reality of the facts on the ground. So now he says, now that we know that there's two different mindsets, one which creates an obligation, and then one which conforms with reality, which is your obligation to pay. So now he says, mm-hmm. So Refutner says that that distinction, that difference between the two types of das, is the exact thing which differentiates the nature of the obligation of the sheva mitzvos ben Noach, the seven Noahide laws, versus the six hundred and thirteen mitzvos of the Torah. Why? So it says, "D'as Because when it comes to the sheva mitzvos ben Noach, as we mentioned in our like introduction a little, das shall The only thing that God needed from the nations of the world for the sheva mitzvos ben Noach to become binding is they just have to accept reality. They weren't consulted about it in the first place. God imposed it upon them, and now they have to accept, okay, the reality is we're not allowed to murder, we're not allowed to curse God, we're not allowed to uh, to uh, to worship idolatry, we have to set up a court system. God says, these are the rules, and I expect you to comply. So we just need compliance from them. We don't need them to agree to these laws at all. Because... God never consulted with the nations of the world to find out whether they want the Shev Mitzvot Bnei Noach or not. He just imposed it upon me, He threw it upon them. Because the the obligation to observe the Shev Mitzvot Bnei Noach, it was a command which was issued without any conversation between God and the nations of the world ahead of time. There was no conversation after that. It was just something which was imposed upon them. But aval ha das the taryug he das But when God went ahead into uh, to issue the six hundred and thirteen mitzvahs and wanted to command the six hundred and thirteen mitzvahs, the das he was looking for over there is not das which accepts the reality on the ground. Which is just an expectation of compliance, but this is the creation of an agreement. Because the only thing which obligates us in the mitzvahs is the fact that God consulted with us before He gave us the six hundred and thirteen mitzvahs, and we said yes, we're willing to accept it. So that's the type of das which creates an obligation, it creates something which is binding, and demibli hischayvu samugdemes. Because without that agreement that Kla Yisrael gave when they said Nasav and Ishma, so God would not command the 613 mitzvahs unless or in the absence of our agreement to accept them. So, whereas the Shev mitzvahs could be imposed upon them even without their, their agreement. The Taryag Mitzvahs, the Mitzvahs of the Torah, would never have been commanded without our agreement, and it's built on the fact that we said Nasa we agreed, admitted ourselves to follow those those Mitzvahs. So this is point number one, that there's this fundamental difference in terms of how they were, how the Mitzvahs became binding when Mitzvah became binding because God said, I'm now demanding that everybody go ahead and comply with these. No conversation about it, no consultation whatsoever. It's just an expectation. As opposed to the Tariyag Mitzvahs, the Torah, there God said, I'm only going to command them in the event that you accept them willingly, but if you're not willing to accept them, I'm not issuing them as Mitzvahs at all. Okay. Then he says, we can now take it a step further. And this is what he's going to, he's going to keep building this idea. And he says that the betaryag amru, then when it comes to the fulfillment of the six hundred and thirty verses Chazal say that oh. that there is no mitzvah in the Torah which doesn't plant a seed which leads to so resurrection is a direct consequence of the mitzvah. You do a mitzvah and that leads to resurrection in some way shape or form. How exactly that works is not our discussion now, but the important thing is is that resurrection is something which is a, something which is formed by I believe in, it, in terms of the fact that uh, so nimsa, it turns out that debris he bris the triasamason. So a, a a a second side of the coin that once God, uh, once we agreed to the 613 mitzvahs, what that does is, is that that very same covenant is what lays the groundwork and the foundation for Treyas for resurrection. Obviously, resurrection, as the word itself implies, is you're creating new life in a sense. Let's just look at it very simplistically that a person dies when they're resurrected so there's new life which is being infused to them at the time of the resurrection. So tariq mitzvahs leads to something which is new, the creation of something which was new. But on the other hand, fascinating contrast, he says, But when it comes to the fulfillment of the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach, shall l'habi es'olam lidei a person who complies a thousand percent, a non-Jew, a Gentile who, com- who complies a thousand percent with the Shev Mitzvot B'nai Noach, doesn't get him Olam Haba, is not going to earn for that person resurrection because that's not what that's not what the Shev Mitzvot B'nai Noach are, are are designed for. What is the consequence? What happens when uh, the nations of the world comply with the Shev Mitzvot B'nai Noach? So he says, Abris Hakrusim Noach, nana Rak. Od mabul, velote od mich, All HaKadosh Baruch Hu promises with the Shev Noach is, I won't make a flood anymore, and I won't wipe out the world. So I'm not promising that you're going to get some sort of prize. There's just no punishment. I'm committing, God says, that with the, your compliance, or not compliance, but with your, with this uh, this issuance of the Shev Mitzvah Noach, so what that means is, I will not destroy the, the, the world anymore. And God says, you know what? I'm not going to suspend laws of nature anymore. There's biology, there's chemistry, there's physics. These things are solid. These things I am not going to go ahead and start bending and suspending and uh, and doing all sorts of uh, uh, things with that. I'm not doing any of that stuff because the sheva mitzvahs are there so that in order to maintain the world. That's what their purpose is. So the world does not get destroyed, but it's not there to create something which is new, like the Tariyad Mitzvahs are there to go ahead and create this new existence, which we call Tchiyos and which we call Resurrection. So not only was the agreement fundamentally different between the two of them, but the consequence of the two of them are fundamentally, are dramatically different from uh, from one another. In other words, he explains, jumping down a few uh, lines over here, he says, uh, because when it comes to the structure of the 630 mitzvahs, the purpose of compliance with the fulfillment of the mitzvahs of the Torah is in order to, is in order to generate this new creation, meaning resurrection. So, memela, so being that we're, trying, that we're trying, the purpose is to generate something which is new. So memela, that's why, and now he's connecting these two ideas, So that's why since the, the goal is to create something new, i.e. resurrection, so therefore from the very outset, from its very foundational level, it has to be something which has my mindset, which is also creating something which is new, that's the hischaivus, my agreement to be obligated. So since it's my agreement to create a new obligation, which didn't exist previously, and you can only have an obligation with my agreement, so once my agreement creates, so that means that the whole structure is one which leads to creation, the end of which, thousands of years later, leads to resurrection. So it begins with saying Naseh V'nishma, and it ends with resurrection of Klai Yisrael because of the fulfillment of, of the mitzvahs. And and without our initial agreement to uh, conform and to uh, comply with the Tariq Mitzvahs, you cannot have the Tariq Mitzvahs. The Tariq Mitzvahs cannot be issued unilaterally by God or imposed upon us by God just because he said so. The whole structure of Tariq Mitzvah is this mutual agreement between God and the Jewish people. And being that we have to accept upon ourselves the obligation, we're creating something which is new. And therefore, the end result, the reward of that, is also going to be something which is new. But of HaSheva, when it comes to the structure or the character of the Sheva mitzvahs b'nei Noach, Asher Inyana shmiras Hakayim. The purpose of the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nei Noach is just to maintain status quo. A lot of discussion about status quo in Israel, with politics and religion and all sorts of things. But Rav Hunner says that the function of the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nei Noach was just to maintain the status quo. There's biology, there's chemistry, there is physics, there are laws of nature, and God says, I'm not going to disrupt them anymore. So we're not creating anything new, nothing new and novel and no chidushim are going to be generated out of this, All we want to do is maintenance. Do this, and then I I, I won't fiddle around with the world anymore. And therefore, since we're not trying to create something new, we're just trying to maintain. So we don't need the type of das which is necessary to create something which is new, because we're not creating. The goal is not to create anything new. Because as we've said, God did not consult with us, with mankind, one iota before he went ahead and imposed the Shev Mitzvot He just went ahead and said, this is what you're now, I'm, these are the expectations that I have for you. And being that I'm imposing these expectations on you, I'm committing I won't destroy the world anymore. And I won't mess around with uh, with laws of nature. But the marach ela The Shabbos are not something which we need our agreement to be binding. We just need your compliance. All we need is your compliance to do what I'm telling you to do, but I don't need your agreement. It's going to be imposed upon you no matter what. If you're born an American citizen, there's an expectation that you're going to follow the laws. Nobody asked you when you were born. Are you willing to accept the laws of the United States of America or not? If you if you want to become a citizen from a foreign country, then you have to formally accept upon yourself the uh, th- those laws. But as a born citizen, it's just an expectation, and I don't need your agreement ahead of time. That's what it is, and therefore, um, uh, the uh lachartzivui. Uh, and this is not something which was created or generated after any sort of. Uh, any sort of uh, agreement or any sort of comm- any sort of agreement on our part. Okay, now um, we're actually going to skip a bit, which hopefully it's not going to cost us too much in terms of our overall understanding. But what he's now going to do is, he's now going to begin to start closing off the circles. If you remember, we talked about how the, the way that he, he structured it is Question, 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 and then we get to his primary yesod, his primary foundational uh, principle, and then we begin to work out and begin to answer those, uh, resolve those those questions. So here, he says, now that we understand this idea, this, this fundamental difference between the type of mindset which obligates Jews in the Tariq Mitzvahs versus what creates the, uh, the obligations for the Sheva Mitzvahs of Neenah, for, the, uh, for the nations of the world, in terms of their Mitzvahs. So now he says, again, he, can, he, can, he acts incredibly poetic. He says, Hanacha zu, now these principles, these assumptions, which we have over here. So he, Evan Pina, literally it's a foundation, it's like a cornerstone. Right there, That's literally what it translates as, but it's a cornerstone. <inaudible> when it comes to all of the halachas about things which take place inside of our mind, in the obligation that we feel inside of our heart, these are sacred terms, uh, f- sacred four words that Refutner has. He maintains that all of his pachad is in order to teach. He's not telling you practical things, do this, do that. He maintains that what I'm teaching you is in other words, I'm teaching you a perspective and a mindset, which you will then use in order to enhance your avodah sashem. But I'm just telling you general principles about things. I'm not going to go ahead and be the type of person who's going to instruct you, you know, step by step along the way, what to do and what not to do with stuff like that. So here, Rafutner says that this concept, this fundamental difference between the bris of Torah. And the Shev Mitzvahs Noach is an incredibly important, it's the cornerstone of all our, of all of, of, of our Avoda HaShem. And now he says, V'om Kach Al And he says, now that we understand the this fundamental difference between the covenant of Torah and the covenant of the Shev Mitzvahs Noach, we can now go back to one of the P'shuk in which he mentioned, which we didn't review at the beginning, but now uh, we can explain exactly what's going on. So, if you remember last week, the Rav quoted the pasuk, "Re'ein asatov satov So Hashem says, "Behold, I am placing before you the fanecha, before you, good and bad." And one of the questions that Rav asked about this was that the word lefanecha seems to be curious. Because obviously in the Torah, God is speaking to the Jewish people. Or Moshe Rabbeinu is speaking to the Jewish people. So who else is going to be the audience who's going to be listening to this? So why do you need the word of Fanecha? Who else is, is it going to be addressed to? And then on top of that, another thing which I found to be curious was seemingly all the Pesach is telling us is that you, Jewish people, should be aware that you have, there are choices which you could make which are good, which we characterize as tov, and there are choices which you could make which are bad, which we characterize as ra. Now, the truth is that the difference, the, the, the availability of choices between tov and ra is not a uniquely Jewish idea. Because non-Jews who have the Shev Mitzvot B'nai Noach, they also can choose compliance with the Shev Mitzvot B'nai Noach, that would be tov, or they could choose non-compliance with the Shev Noach, which would be ra. So the same choice between tov and ra applies to Jews and non-Jews just the same. So being that the two choices of tov and ra does not seem to differentiate between Jews and non-Jews. So why is it being presented as if lefanecha? this is something which is a uniquely Jewish presentation, Tov and Ra. It's only directed to the Jews anyways, because that's what the Torah is. And Tov and Ra are choices which are universal choices, nothing to do with the Jewish people. So he says, but the truth is, is lefanecha that when the Apostle says L'fanecha, lefanecha, lefanecha dafka that there is something which is uniquely Jewish about this presentation, asat afinecha, something which is uniquely Jewish and does not apply to the nations of the world. De which is specifically for Knesset Israel, but he says that this seems somewhat astonishing, because, as we just explained, De because the presentation of two options, that which is good and that which is bad, having your, an angel on one shoulder whispering in your ear and the devil on the other shoulder whispering in the proverbial you know, voices inside of your head, that's not something which is uniquely Jewish. That applies cross-culture as universal. So why is it presented as if this is something which is uniquely Jewish? So explains the Vodner, But rather, this is exactly what we've been talking about. So what the the meaning of that passage is rooted in this idea, this distinction between the covenants which we are saying. In other words, that uh, again, skipping a little uh, a little bit over here. Uh, yeah. So he says the, the difference is. Because when it comes to Torah, so as we said, etzem haknisa that the entrance into this covenant, which connects to mitzvus, ba al-yesod zu. So our covenant with Torah and with mitzvahs was only created because we have this agreement ahead of time. God consulted with us ahead of time, and we agreed, yes, we want to go ahead and accept upon ourselves the obligation to fulfill these mitzvahs. And being there, the covenant of the Torah could only be created if we agree to it in the first place, if we say nasa V'nishma at the outset. So therefore, it's evident that our performance of the mitzvahs It's creating a new reality, a new existence, a new life for the members of Klai Yisrael. So we're no longer the same people we were beforehand. We now have a new obligation, a new set of circumstances in our life by virtue of the fact that we agreed to accept upon ourselves these mitzvahs. So remember, he's been pointing out that the difference between the covenant of the Jewish people and the covenant of the Shev Mitzvot is whether or not there was an agreement ahead of time for that obligation. So this idea that when God says... Uh, the Lefanecha doesn't mean that the Torah is speaking now to the Jews as opposed to the Gentiles, because there's no Gentiles in Muhammad Har Sinai. None of, none of them are there anyways, or none of them are with the Jewish people at the end of the 40 years in the, in the wilderness. The only audience which is there are the Jews. But the Lefanecha is saying that, behold, you should be aware that your connection to Torah, your obligation to do mitzvahs, your... Uh, side of the covenant uh, which we call Bris Torah that was created, L'Fanecha, that was a mutual agreement which was created between God and the Jewish people only because you went ahead and agreed to do so. By the non-Jews there's no L'Fanecha because there was no consultation with them. It was something which was imposed upon them rather than something that they agreed to. So the Lefanecha, he says, the Hainu. so that's why Rak al- al-zehu Omer Lefanecha. The Lefanecha doesn't mean I'm speaking to Jews, and the Gentiles could go ahead and talk, take a t- coffee break now, and they don't have to pay attention to this part. But Lefanecha Dafka Daheinu Israel. But the word Lefanecha means that this is an agreement which can only exist with the Jewish people. And we're not saying Jews as opposed to non Jews. We're saying that we're talking about the covenant of Torah rather than the covenant of the Shev Mitzvahs B'nei Noach. The Rakh because it's only that relationship between God and the Jewish people that was created in Torah, only that is something which required our agreement, and that's the emphasis on the Lefanecha, as opposed to Shev Mitzvahs B'nei Noach, where there was no agreement necessary. All God expects from the nations of the world is compliance, and therefore there would never be a lefanecha that I presented it to you as if you had some sort of choice. Because since it was something which is imposed upon them, so there was no choice and God would never use the term, or Moshe I mean, would never use the word lefanecha the in that in that regard. Now he says, now this is where, in my opinion, this gets even more fascinating. So we're talking about from the very beginning of it, we talked about the end of it, and we talked about this language of e'na sat lefanecha tov Now he says, now, if you want to think about this more deeply and you want to arrive at the truth, you'll find a beautiful idea. So now Rafutner points out a fascinating thing, because not only was the the um, the beginning of these covenants were they created in a different way, one with consultation and one was just imposed upon them. But remember that each one of these covenants has a, a, a physical symbol which represents that covenant. And the difference between those two symbols is also going to be is going to be rooted in all of the, the, this distinction, this contrast, which we're making between the covenant of Torah and the covenant of, of uh, the B'nai Noah. Because what? Those brisos shall know Everybody knows what is the sign of the covenant that God has with the uh, the nations of the world with Noach and his descendants. That covenant is represented by a rainbow. But on the other hand, vos brisos shall Avram he hamila, as opposed to the sign of the covenant with uh, with uh, the, with Avram Avinu is brismila. mila. And we'll put aside all of that that stuff for now. Now, and if you look in the Ramban. So he says, the Ramban says an, an important idea in terms of the, the use of a rainbow for the covenant that God is not going to destroy the world anymore. The Ramban says, in Chumash, he says, That God did not create a rainbow for the first time following the flood. He didn't create a rainbow to serve as a symbol that he's no longer going to destroy the world. Ella is vibracious the existence of a rainbow is just a scientific reality of regular laws of science as light goes through the uh, the water and creates a prism-like thing and you're going to have a rainbow that's just something which is part of the laws of nature so God didn't create a new law of nature following the flood rainbows cr- uh, were existed from the time of creation anytime you had uh, um uh, light the, the light of the sun going through the, the water and the sky, whatever it's going through, so that creates a rainbow, and that existed for the thousand years before the uh, before the uh, the flood. But <inaudible> the only thing which happened was God said, You know what, remember that rainbow you used to be excited about when you were a child, Noah? So that rainbow is now going to be the symbol which represents the new agreement between God and the and the, uh, the nations of the world, you have Shev Mitzvot Noach, I'm not going to suspend or uh, get rid of the laws of nature, I'm not going to destroy mankind or the universe anymore, and I'm using this existing um, uh, thing called a rainbow, and this is now going to be the symbol to represent that covenant. And the heim Hadvarim. Now the fact that God did not create a new symbol to represent his commitment not to destroy the world, but he took something which was already in existence to serve that purpose. So he says that, and that is, because Because just like, as we mentioned, the nature and character of the two covenants, the covenant of Torah and the covenant of B'nai Noach, are different at a very fundamental level, So for the very same reason, what makes them different on a fundamental level also expresses itself in the difference in terms of the symbol which is used to represent these two covenants as well. They have to go hand in hand because the symbol has to be an authentic representation of what exactly the covenant is. So if on a covenantal level, they're different from one another, the symbol that we're going to use for each of them also has to be representative of that fundamental difference. So what is it again? So he reviews again. The fundamental difference is So like we said earlier tonight, that the purpose, the goal of the brist noach, of the covenant that God makes with mankind in general, is sustaining maintenance of the world. I will not destroy the world anymore. That's all God is committing to do. I will not destroy the world anymore. Nothing new is coming into existence. I'm just promising you that things are going to stay status quo. That's God's commitment in terms of the Noah, And therefore, it makes sense that if you're going to just maintain status quo, why would you create a new symbol? You take something which already exists, and you say, this thing which already exists is now going to be assigned to be the symbol of the covenant, which is, I'm not going to destroy, and I'm going to maintain status quo. Because it would be incongruent to create a new symbol in order to represent status quo. That wouldn't be status quo, that'd be something new. But on the other hand, V'ilu briso shel Avram. but when it comes to the covenant with Avram Avinu and the covenant of Torah, so as we said, the compliance with the Torah, this creates a new reality, which is resurrection, which doesn't really exist in our physical world. This is something which necessitates something special coming from God in order to resuscitate life from you know from a, from a body which is dead, and therefore he says, and being that the Torah that the the covenant of Torah, is leading to something which is new and something which didn't exist. So he says, So if there's an exact match over here, as far as what we're looking for now, That's why we find that each one of these covenants is symbolized by something which is different, which is, bris So, that when God was searching, when he put the, uh, the, the advertising team or the marketing team, he says, listen, we've got this new covenant which we're putting in place. <laughs> we've got a new, uh, uh, a new deal which is going on, a new covenant. I need something which is going to capture that covenant. What do you guys come up with? you guys go into your, uh, your creative rooms, play your ping pong and sit on your, uh, your beanbag chairs and come up with something which is creative in order to represent this new covenant called Shav Vene Noah. So they say, okay, if the purpose of this uh, this covenant is not to destroy the world, is to maintain status quo, so it makes sense we're going to take some amazing thing, which has already existed, which has already been in existence, okay, the rainbow, we're going with that. And all they did was, they took that existing thing, and they have decided that this is now going to represent uh, this particular covenant. And therefore, that's what they did over there. But when it comes to the covenant, the sign, which is going to symbolize the bris of Torah and mitzvahs, and Avram Avinu, this is creating a new, we're just going to say it, a new structure of mankind. We're going to physically alter mankind in a way which creates something which is new. But ultimately, it leads to is something which is new and now he says that this idea that not only was the outset of the uh, of these covenants different not only is the goal of these covenants different and not only are the symbols of these covenants different but now he says we can address another point which we also talked about uh, last week and that was he pointed out that when it comes to the covenant of noah the bris with the Shav Mitzvahs B'nei Noach, so the way that that was characterized was L'doros Olam, that this is going to be for all generations, generations forever, whereas when it came to the bris of Torah, the terminology that the Torah used was, the phrase that the Torah uses was, bris Olam, it's an eternal covenant. So one is the eternal generations, all generations, and the other is that it's an eternal covenant. So why is one, so he says, Hashmatas Tevas Doros so he says the absence of the word generations when we discuss the bris of Avram in light of what we've said already now we can understand why God did not use the word generations when he was talking about the uh, the bris of Avramavinu. why is that so so he says that, also a fascinating thing he says, he says specific, we, we invoke the word generations, specifically when it comes to the covenant of Noah. Because as we've said, the whole goal of the bris of compliance with the bris of Noah is in order that God will not destroy the world. That's all we're, we're just trying to make sustain the world. We're trying to maintain the world. We're trying to keep status quo. And therefore, a memela, so therefore, when it comes to the covenant of, of the Shev Mitzvahs Noach, there's no ups and downs. There's no better or worse or anything like that. The obligation, it remains a static. It's static throughout all the generations. Every generation has the same obligations and nothing is going to change as far as the Shev Mitzvahs Noach are concerned. And it doesn't matter whether you're in China, whether you're in Canada, whether you're in uh, Brazil it's going to be cross-cultural, it's going to be universal, cross-generational, intergenerational, it's going to apply equally in all of those places. So that's why in that context we quote the term, uh, we use the term Lidoros, and that is in order to express this idea that the Kishem She'en B'Brizu Havtachas Chiddush, just like this covenant does not promise anything which is novel, anything which is new, anything which didn't exist, So too, nothing about this covenant is ever going to change. Because it's universal. Universal means it always applies everywhere, no matter what. And the promise remains static, it remains fixed, and it's unchanging, no matter what. In all generations, in all cultures, in all all nations, they are all going to interact with that covenant in the exact same way. And that's why it says, But when it comes to the bris of Avramavinu, so he says that this is the, the covenant which leads to new creation, which is dependent upon our compliance with the Torah, because since the whole thing was built on our agreement of Nasev and Ishma in the first place, so that means that the more nasa venishma-like we do, the better off we are. The less nasa like we are, so the worse off we are. So that means each generation is going to be interacting with the covenant of Torah differently. Some are going to be better, and some are going to be worse. And that's why you'll find this wave which is going on. Sometimes we're equated with the stars in heaven, and sometimes we're like the, uh, the grains of sand on the beach. And we could go up and we could go down, because there's going to be waves uh, as far as our existence, because we don't have this static relationship with Torah, it's something which is constantly changing. And this also is why, ultimately, uh, Hu Moshe Rabbeinu says, Re'ei es, ha ra, es ha tov ha ra. Behold, I'm placing before you tov and ra, good and bad, because you're going to be making choices, and depending on your choices, you could either end up in Shemaim, or you can end up somewhere below Shemaim, and not uh, not uh, not there." So being that it's something which is constantly moving around and there is no fixed place, so this means that we are going to, uh, we are, uh, we wouldn't use the term Doros because it's not something which is consistent throughout the, the generations. And he says, um, we'll just read the last line over here. He says, tevas <laughs> Doros. He says, for this reason, so the word Doros, the word generations, is not present, is not there when we talk about the bris of Torah. And what we do say about the covenant is, we don't say, sorry, we don't say about the covenant of Torah that it is eternal for all generations. But rather, the adjective that we use for the covenant of Torah, Musav revolves around but it's something which is we talk about its existence in the world but not necessarily for particular generations being that this is something which is a um, a universal covenant in the sense that it creates worlds and therefore, the name of this covenant is going to be bris olam. It is a covenant which creates worlds, going back to the trias amazing type of thing, that the, the compliance with the bris of Torah has the capacity within it to create this new existence, which is called resurrection, and that is the covenant of worlds. Because it literally has the capacity to go ahead and create worlds. Okay, so this is this is the hard part of the uh, of the uh, of this particular mimer, which I was worried we weren't going to be able to get through it. But Baruch Hashem, we're able to get through it. So Mirza Hashem, next week we'll begin to see now how all of this swings back to uh, to uh, to Hanukkah and how we're going to be able to deepen our Mirsa deepen our appreciation of Hanukkah and what exactly our focus and our thoughts should be as we're standing uh, as we're sitting there looking at the uh, the candles and what the uh, the candles represent in all of that. So that is that.
1: Okay, I have a question. Yes. So then, if Hashem made this bris of um, the, the, the rainbow, why aren't we just saying Osama gracious, why do we say uh, the pasuk for a rainbow when we see one of Zochera bris?
0: Uh, because the the, the rainbow uh, had God not made this uh, bris Noah. So then we would have said the brach of Osem on a rainbow the same as we make it on other uh, cool parts of, uh, of nature, cool parts of creation. But being that it was assigned this task to go ahead and to represent the covenant, so therefore we emphasize it. Hold well, let me pull out the sitter here. We emphasize the nature of it, which is... But you
1: also said that one of the last words of the Passover was... <laughs>
0: Wait, what's that? <laughs> so that Hashem remembers the covenant, he's uh, faithful in terms of his covenant, and he's going to sustain it forever. Right. So that was given. But then a...
1: you said in the pasuk, the last part of the pasuk, it says the kolos olam. Right. The that was pasuk, that was part of this this thing. So oh, that's thing about how like when somebody so. makes an error before um, that i don't know by heart
0: um yeah i don't know either
1: you see, the second to last line it said clolus olum
0: oh clolus olum yeah yeah so okay.
1: isn't that like um like when somebody makes an error like a a clola like a no they, a they'll thing? be
0: it will be klola with a kuf. This is like cloud, cloud klal, of oh. wrath. So, a g- general rather than uh, there, rather than a curse. I
1: see. I see. Okay, that makes sense.
0: Okay, That's excellent. All right, thank you, Rabbi. All right, good night, everybody. We will see you on Mezuzah Thursday night, eight thirty. God willing. Thank, mm-hmm. you. thank all you. All too.